Fourth Reverie, Section 1, Part 1 of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Morning. Isabel and I, she is my cousin and is seven years old, and I am ten, are sitting together on the bank of the stream under an oak tree that leans halfway over to the water. I am much stronger than she, and taller by a head. I hold in my hands a little alder rod, with which I am fishing for the roach and minnows that play in the pool below us. She is watching the cork tossing on the water, or playing with the captured fish that lie upon the bank. She has auburn ringlets that fall down upon her shoulders, and her straw hat lies back upon them, held only by the strip of ribbon that passes under her chin. But the sun does not shine upon her head, for the oak tree above us is full of leaves, and only here and there a dimple of the sunlight plays upon the pool where I am fishing. Her eye is hazel and bright, and now and then she turns it on me with a look of girlish curiosity, as I lift up my rod, and again in playful menace, as she grasps in her little fingers one of the dead fish, and threatens to throw it back upon the stream. Her little feet hang over the edge of the bank, and from time to time she reaches down to dip her toe in the water, and laughs a girlish laugh of defiance, as I scold her for frightening away the fishes. "'Bella,' I say, "'what if you should tumble in the river?' "'But I won't.' "'Yes, but if you should?' "'Why, then you would pull me out.' "'But if I wouldn't pull you out?' "'But I know you would, wouldn't you, Paul?' "'What makes you think so, Bella?' "'Because you love Bella.' "'How do you know I love Bella?' "'Because once you told me so.' and because you pick flowers for me that I cannot reach, and because you let me take your rod when you have a fish upon it. But that's no reason, Bella. Then what is, Paul? I'm sure I don't know, Bella. A little fish has been nibbling for a long time at the bait. The cork has been bobbing up and down, and now he is fairly hooked, and pulls away toward the bank, and you cannot see the cork. Here, Bella, quick! and she springs eagerly to clasp her little hands around the rod. But the fish has dragged it away on the other side of me, and as she reaches farther and farther, she slips, cries, Oh, Paul! and falls into the water. The stream, they told us when we came, was over a man's head. It is surely over little Isabel's. I fling down the rod, and thrusting one hand into the roots that support the overhanging bank, I grasp at her hat as she comes up, but the ribbons give way, and I see the terribly earnest look upon her face as she goes down again. Oh, my mother, thought I, if you were only here. But she rises again. This time I thrust my hand into her dress, and struggling hard, keep her at the top until I can place my foot down upon a projecting root, and, so bracing myself, I drag her to the bank, and having climbed up, take hold of her belt firmly with both hands, and drag her out, and poor Isabel, choked, chilled, and wet, is lying upon the grass. I commence crying aloud. The workmen in the fields hear me, and come down. One takes Isabel in his arms, and I follow on foot to our uncle's home upon the hill. "'Oh, my dear children,' says my mother, and she takes Isabel in her arms, and presently, 
With dry clothes and blazing wood-fire, little Bella smiles again. I am at my mother's knee. "'I told you so, Paul,' says Isabel. "'Auntie, doesn't Paul love me?' "'I hope so, Bella,' said my mother. "'I know so,' said I, and kissed her cheek. "'And how did I know it? The boy does not ask, the man does. Oh, the freshness, the honesty, the vigour of a boy's heart! How the memory of it refreshes like the first gush of spring, or the break of an April shower!' but boyhood has its pride as well as its loves. My uncle is a tall, hard-faced man. I fear him when he calls me child. I love him when he calls me Paul. He is almost always busy with his books, and when I steal into the library door, as I sometimes do, with a string of fish, or a heaping basket of nuts to show him, he looks for a moment curiously at them, sometimes takes them in his fingers, gives them back to me, and turns over the leaves of his book. You are afraid to ask him if you have not worked bravely, yet you want to do so. You sidle out softly, and go to your mother. She scarce looks at your little stores, but she draws you to her with her arm, and prints a kiss upon your forehead. Now your tongue is unloosened. That kiss and that action have done it. You will tell what capital luck you have had and you hold up your tempting trophies. Are they not great, mother? But she is looking in your face, and not at your prize. Take them, mother, and you lay the basket upon her lap. Thank you, Paul. I do not wish them, but you must give some to Bella. And away you go to find laughing, playful Cousin Isabel, and we sit down together on the grass, and I pour out my stores between us. You shall take, Bella, what you wish in your apron, and then, when study hours are over, we will have such a time down by the big rock in the meadow. But I do not know if Papa will let me, says Isabel. Bella, I say, do you love your Papa? Yes, says Bella. Why not? Because he is so cold. He does not kiss you, Bella, so often as my mother does. And, besides, when he forbids your going away, he does not say, as mother does, my little girl will be tired, she had better not go. But he says only, Isabel must not go. I wonder what makes him talk so. Why, Paul, he is a man, and doesn't. At any rate, I love him, Paul. Besides, my mother is sick, you know. But, Isabel, my mother will be your mother, too. Come, Bella, we will go ask her if we may go. And there I am, the happiest of boys, pleading with the kindest of mothers. And the young heart leans into that mother's heart, none of the void now that will overtake it like an opening coracle in the years to come. It is joyous, full, and running over. You may go, she says, if your uncle is willing. But, Mama, I am afraid to ask him. I do not believe he loves me. Don't say so, Paul, and she draws you to her side, as if she would supply by her own love the lacking love of a universe. Go with your cousin, Isabel, and ask him kindly, and if he says no, make no reply. And with courage we go hand in hand, and steal in at the library door. There he sits, I seem to see him now, in the old wainscoted room, covered over with books and pictures. 
and he wears his heavy-rimmed spectacles, and is poring over some big volume full of hard words that are not in any spelling-book. We step up softly, and Isabel lays her little hand upon his arm, and he turns and says, Well, my little daughter? I ask him if we may go down to the big rock in the meadow. He looks at Isabel, and says he is afraid we cannot go. But why, uncle? It is only a little way, and we will be very careful. I am afraid, my children. Do not say any more. You can have the pony and tray, and play at home. But, uncle, you need say no more, my child. I pinch the hand of little Isabel, and look in her eye, my own half filling with tears. I feel that my forehead is flushed, and I hide it behind Bella's tresses whispering to her at the same time, "'Let us go.' "'What, sir?' says my uncle, mistaking my meaning. "'Do you persuade her to disobey?' Now I am angry, and say blindly, "'No, sir, I didn't.' And then my rising pride will not let me say that I wished only Isabel should go out with me. Bella cries, and I shrink out, and am not easy until I have run to bury my head in my mother's bosom. Alas, pride cannot always find such comfort. There will be times when it will harass you strangely, when it will peril friendships, will sever old standing intimacy, and then no resource but to feed on its own bitterness. Hateful pride! To be conquered as a man would conquer an enemy, or it will make whirlpools in the current of your affections, nay, turn the whole tide of the heart into rough and unaccustomed channels. But boyhood has its grief, too, apart from pride. You love the old dog, Trey, and Bella loves him as well as you. He is a noble old fellow, with shaggy hair and long ears and big paws that he will put up into your hand if you ask him. And he never gets angry when you play with him and tumble him over in the long grass and pull his silken ears. Sometimes, to be sure, he will open his mouth as if he would bite, but when he gets your hand fairly in his jaws, he will scarce leave the print of his teeth upon it. He will swim, too, bravely, and bring ashore all the sticks you throw upon the water, and when you fling a stone to tease him, he swims round and round and whines, and looks sorry that he cannot find it. He will carry a heaping basket full of nuts, too, in his mouth, and never spill one of them. And when you come out to your uncle's home in the spring, after staying a whole winter in the town, he knows you, old Trey does, and he leaps upon you, and lays his paws on your shoulder, and licks your face, and is almost as glad to see you as cousin Bella herself. And when you put Bella on his back for a ride, he only pretends to bite her little feet, but he wouldn't do it for the world. Aye, Trey is a noble old dog. But one summer the farmers say that some of their sheep are killed, and that the dogs have worried them, and one of them comes to talk with my uncle about it. But Trey never worried sheep. You know he never did, and so does Nurse, and so does Bella, for in the spring she had a pet lamb, and Trey never worried little Fidel and one or two of the dogs that belong to the neighbors are shot, though nobody knows who shot them, and you have great fears about poor Trey, and try to keep him at home, and fondle him more than ever, but Trey will sometimes wander off, 
till finally, one afternoon, he comes back whining piteously, and with his shoulder all bloody. Little Bella cries loud, and you almost cry as nurse dresses the wound, and poor old Trey whines very sadly. You pat his head, and Bella pats him, and you sit down together by him on the floor of the porch, and bring a rug for him to lie upon, and try and tempt him with a little milk, and Bella brings a piece of cake for him, but he will eat nothing. You sit up till very late, long after Bella has gone to bed, patting his head, and wishing you could do something for poor Trey. But he only licks your hand, and whines more piteously than ever. In the morning you dress early, and hurry downstairs. But Trey is not lying on the rug, and you run through the house to find him, and whistle, and call, Trey, Trey! At length you see him lying in his old place, out by the cherry tree, and you run to him. But he does not start, and you lean down to pat him, but he is cold, and the dew wet upon him. Poor Trey is dead. You take his head upon your knees, and pat again those glossy ears, and cry. But you cannot bring him to life, and Bella comes, and cries with you. You can hardly bear to have him put in the ground, but Uncle says he must be buried. So one of the workmen digs a grave under the cherry tree, where he died, a deep grave, and they round it over with earth, and smooth the sods upon it. Even now I can trace Trey's grave. You and Bella together put up a little slab for a tombstone, and she hangs flowers upon it, and ties them there with a bit of ribbon. You can scarce play all that day, and afterward, many weeks later, when you are rambling over the fields, or lingering by the brook, throwing off sticks into the eddies, you think of old Trey's shaggy coat, and of his big paw, and of his honest eye, and the memory of your boyish grief comes upon you, and you say with tears, Poor Trey! And Bella, too, in her sad sweet tones, says, Poor old Trey! He is dead! End of Section 1, Part 1 of Fourth Reverie